It's the MMA Geeks C-Level Podcast with your hosts, Stan Dryav and Nick Bracha. Welcome to the MMA Geeks C-Level Podcast. Stan Dryav, Nick Braccia on deck for episode number 64 in which we will be talking about the Cater versus Ige card of last week as well as the Figueredo versus Benavidez fight card. And we're going to break down this weekend's Whitaker versus Till fight card. Nikolai, how are you, buddy? Uh, I'm okay. Those two cards were a little rough. A little rough on me, but um, some exciting fights. Nick, the king. The king is back. The crown is resting where it should be, Nick. I am now up 11 wins to your four. We have, I think, three or four draws in there. Nick, it feels good to get back to my dominant ways. Now, I know you're going to talk about how recently we've been closer. Dominant, dominant performance, Nick. You're three, you're three, three, and two over the last uh, eight cards, so or nine cards since this was a double. So congratulations on your mediocrity. Well, you know what, Nikolai? Dustin Poirier is one and one in his last two fights, and he's still one of the very, very top fighters in the entire planet, Nikolai. And I've got 11 victories over you. Nick, if you tripled your current total number of wins, only then, only then would you be ahead of me. And that is, of course, if I never picked up another victory. Nick, it feels good. It, it really does. I got some clutch victories in there, ones that we disagreed on. And you know what? I didn't even train. I didn't take my vitamins. I didn't do a lick of prayer, Nick. It was all purely, purely talent. Oh, should, wait. Are you still there? I was on the, I was on the phone. Oh, Nick. Of all the comebacks in the entire world, you're going to try that one again? Is this where we are in our lives? <laughs> uh, so a good couple of nights of cards overall i think the cater versus ige fight was a five rounder i really saw only that second round going ige's way it looked like he rebroke cater's nose and outside of that cater was largely in control now cater didn't put on the kind of damage that i thought he would because i think ige was a little bit less aggressive than i expected him to be throughout the stretch of the fight but Cater did his thing. He looked good in there. There's still only one kind of opponent that can seemingly beat this top 10 featherweight fighter, and that is someone who has long-range kicks and can really use his footwork to stay out of boxing range. Outside of that, Calvin Cater has proven to be deadly, if not deadly in this matchup, certainly in most of his other fights. He's got several finishes in a row. What did you think of this one, buddy? I thought it was exciting. I mean, Ige is such a – he's an easier guy to root for. Because uh, Calvin Cater's got a little bit of that mass hole attitude, but he's certainly a very, very talented boxer. But I, I'm hard pressed to think of a fighter over the last 18 months who's kind of done more with less than Ige. He doesn't seem to be like a remarkable athlete no. compared to other fighters, but he's got tremendous will. And I thought his game plan and strategy, you know, they didn't work for him, but he didn't, but he, I thought he fought well. I thought that he was he was he was getting in there and ripping to the body more often than not getting out. But the damage over five rounds certainly piled up. But I, I really felt like he fought um, a strategic, you know, smart fight. He's just, you know, pardon the pun, he's pu he's punching above his weight class a little bit with with fighters as gifted as Calvin Cater. But you know, there's something to be said for heart, and he's got a lot of it. And I, I'll always be rooting for him and enjoy watching him. For him, I think the majority of it is conditioning and just grit, just sheer will. The man will yeah. not give in. And we saw that in his last fight against Edson Barboza where he was kind of roughed up 
and knocked down early on, kept getting tagged and never gave in, never stopped pushing forward and throwing offense because he knew that is the only chance you have against Edson Barboza. You cannot stay on your back foot and give him time to kind of rest and explode. And unfortunately, that same kind of game plan was not enough against Cater in a five-rounder. Really impressive stuff by both guys. I mean, look, you're right. Ige, six wins in a row leading into this fight. He is now six and two in the UFC, but wins over, you know, a respectable. Couple of split, there's a couple of split decisions in there. Yeah, yeah. The last two fights were split decisions. I thought that Mirsad Bektik fight was clearly his, but the Edson Barboza, I think uh, largely people think that he did not deserve that decision. I'm glad this decision went to the right man. And I agree with you. I think Ige's stock did not fall very much in this loss, but Cater is continuing his track. He's, he's building a little bit of a win streak again after that loss to Magomed Sharipov and uh, it's good to see a couple of kind of up-and-comers main eventing and taking the spotlight I really did enjoy the tactical nature of that main event by the way just Stan you can you can just say is a beat that's okay you don't have to show off and the other thing I'd say is I'd like to see Danny Gay uh, take I don't know, six or eight months off. He fought Barbosa and and Cater, and I don't know what the exact um, length of time was between the two fights, but I think it was like two or three months maybe. And he took a lot of strikes between those two fights. Uh, anyway. I, I do hear that. I, I do I do want to quickly remind you, Nick. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know if I mentioned it earlier that the king is back, baby. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, I got that. I got that. I got that memo. Oh, I mentioned it. Okay. Okay. So Tim yeah. Elliott, Ryan Benoit, what did you think of that decision, buddy? I didn't have a, a huge problem with it. I mean, uh, Benoit, as they call, I always thought it was Benoit, but they call him Benoit. Um, I think you're right. He's, he's got good hands and he, uh, and he, he landed, he landed some big shots, but the judges, um, you know, went for Elliott's activity. I mean, Elliott's one of those guys who, even though he's been on a, a tough, uh, sort of a tough spell, um, he's able to look real active even when he's not being particularly active just because he never stops dancing. I know. He just like throws these pitter-patter shots. They do zero damage, and the takedowns obviously score more points than they probably should, but I agree. I mean, look, uh, we, you and I disagreed on the pick for this one. It ended up being a close decision. As a matter of fact, on MMA decisions, 12 of the journalists thought that Ben Noit deserved it. Six of them only thought that Elliot did, so a little bit surprising that the judges uh, all agreed on this one. But I picked wait so wait so I picked it correctly and you were wrong is wrong the word you're looking for. Well, you you wrong, you, wrong. you picked the guy that did not deserve the decision but ended up getting it anyway. So yeah, to your credit, uh, Nick. On, well, on then you one, don't, you're not, then you're not doing your work to understand how how judging happens, who the guys were on Fight Island, um, what they value, what their backgrounds are. Maybe you should do your homework and then you'll you know maybe you'll have more success. You know what, Nick? In the next segment, I look forward to comparing the research that you and I did. <laughs> <laughs> MFR. Uh Jimmy Rivera, Cody Stamen, good fight. Um, but one of those fights where it's like, yeah, Jimmy Rivera was a little bit better everywhere, but it also was so close that you're like, yeah, Rivera is not gonna fight for a title. That was my that was my takeaway. I think the window of opportunity for Jimmy Rivera fighting for the title at 135 has passed. Yeah, I think I agree with you, and it's largely because Rivera is not super dangerous. Like he is more technical than probably just about anyone in the division but he's not dangerous and now more recently he's not super durable either if you land a couple of clean shots to the jaw and you've got some power he's probably not going to stay on his feet for long so yeah i think that combination the fact that he is not only not dangerous so guys aren't scared of him but he's also a little bit on the fragile side at this point in his career is not awesome but cody's name was the perfect opponent cody doesn't have a lot of power cody has shorter reach cody is mo you know mostly known as a wrestler with decent striking 
and Rivera is known as having phenomenal takedown defense with very good striking. So it was a good style matchup for him. It's a shame that Cody has to pick up another loss. He had a recent loss to Aljamain Sterling as well. Those are his only two losses in there to, you know, top five quality competition at 135 to his credit. But Jim Rivera was the better man and he deserved it. It was competitive, but Jim Rivera clearly outstruck him, I thought, in every way. Defended, I think, all but yep. one takedown, uh, unless I'm mistaken. And uh, then we had Molly McCann, man, getting kind of thrashed by Talia Santos. Nobody, none kidding. of the pundits picked Santos in this fight. You are not kidding. And the money line actually moved big time in favor of Molly McCann. McCann became a bigger and bigger favorite as that fight drew closer. And Talia Santos, after a pretty mediocre UFC debut against Mara Romero Morella, she lost a split decision there. I thought clearly deserved to lose the decision. Um, she looked like she suddenly had her bearings about her. One of the things that had me not believing in her was the fact that most of her opponents are like 0-1 or 1-1. Yeah. Um, but she showed in this case that she's capable. And I also did mention last week that Molly McCann, all of her wins in the UFC are against non-UFC-level competition. Diana Belbita, Ariana Lipsky, Priscilla Cachoeira. These are not like top level 125. But I thought Sa- I thought Santos was in that same category, but Yeah, yeah, that's what it seemed like. I agree, but she looked pretty good. So not only were we wrong about that fight, everyone, well, you I can't remember. Did you you picked uh, you picked Lizes, right? No, I said that Lazes is talented and technical and it's a shame yeah. he has to face Abdul Razak Al-Hassan, but man, he was capable. Yeah, everybody thought this was throwing the sky to the wolves. Yeah. I mean, Al-Hassan punched himself out. I'm not saying those things landed. I mean, some of them must have landed. I mean, he was, it, he's still hitting his arms and he's hitting hard. He's throwing, he must have thrown 25 power shots up against the cage and he didn't go anywhere. No, and, and again, he blocked really effectively with his kind of high guard instead of slipping and, and evading the offense. He literally blocked and it looked like it was effective. Which usually doesn't work. I agree. I don't know if, I don't know if that's because he's amazing at blocking punches or Hassan was not like throwing strategically because you know, four ounce gloves. It shouldn't be that like guys are not generally successful when they just put their arms up to block their face, unless you're Brock Lesnar and your arms are, you know, the size of like a panda bear's ass. Yeah. Al Hassan is in a situation where his offense is explosive and dynamic. So he didn't have to become as technical throughout his career in order to beat guys, right? He was 10 and one leading into this one. Whereas Monir actually had to become technical. He doesn't have insane power. And a lot of his opponents honestly look good against him early, better than Abdul Razak Al Hassan did before he came back. But here, Lazaz, I thought, just controlled the entire fight. What, the last thing I just want to mention, we, I know we have to mention this real quick, even though we didn't really pick on this fight because right. it's a never happened in the UFC before. At middleweight, Kamzat uh, Chimaev, who defeated John Phillips in this card via Darce Choke, is actually fighting again uh, this Saturday. So that's the this is the first time that we've had a fighter who were talking about his victory and then predicting his next fight in the same show. No one in UFC history has turned around this quickly. Yeah, it's something like 10 or twelve, uh, ten or 11 days later, he's competing again. Absolute insanity. I mean, 10 he, days. A, he, he looked untouchable in that fight. It's good to see him. Quickly, a shout-out to L- Leron Murphy, Leron Murphy for beating Ricardo Ramos. Uh, that was a big upset. And Jack Shore, who's a serious prospect, looking forward to seeing him compete again. Let's uh, shift over to the other card that happened over the weekend, Nick. Figueredo versus Benavides, too. You and I disagreed on the main event in this one. I thought Davidson Figueredo was going to smash him the moment he lands a clean shot. Yeah, we all knew that was an emo. We all knew I was making an emotional dream pick because I've got heart and you are a cold bastard. No, I actually think it's a lack of research and a lack of paying attention to the first fight. But, you know, we, we, we can disagree on that. You're coming in hot today, man. I don't know how I feel about this. Is it too much for you, Nick, after having experienced the crushing defeat 
at the hands of your superior, you now have to hear all of this trash talk. We can only have one heel on this show, and that's me. You're supposed to be the baby face, okay? You're respectful. You know, you do the tons of nerdy fucking research. And then my job is to talk shit and make everybody hate me. So you must have gotten my notes. Nick, I am the 6'4", <laughs> 216-pound Adonis on this podcast. I'm basically the rock of this podcast. You can call me Dwayne, Nick. I'm not the nerd. You look kind of like a like a male ballerina, but it's okay. I appreciate you saying that. I'm very muscular, toned, and my legs go up really high. I can definitely kick higher than Dwayne Johnson. I think it's sometimes you wear shirts that kind of look like blouses, but that's okay. Nick, me and Paula Costa shop in the same boutique stores, and I don't appreciate <laughs> you making fun of it. No, I, I understand. You want to be a pirate? That's cool. <laughs> so let's uh, get into this Davison Figueroa versus Joseph Benavides card. This one we expected to be the better card of the two, and I think it largely delivered. Figueroa picked up a beautiful first-round finish of Joseph Benavidez. It was flawless, man. He just ran rough shot over the man. And it was a little bit sad to see Joe Benavidez go down like that. But given some of the pre-fight interviews where Joe talked about the only reason he won is because of the headbutt. I can't believe he's claiming that to be a victory. Dude, you, you lost the first time, and you lost this time cleanly to a much better fighter than you. And I, I'm kind of glad he got his comeuppance in that way. But I'm sad to see the guy you know, get real emotional and afterward. Really good dude, had a long MMA career. He was always the bridesmaid and never quite the bride. And uh, this was the case here again. Tough to watch. His I watched a lot of his like uh, his press conference appearance, which was just heartbreaking. Yeah. But he was he you know he manned up about it. He's like this guy kicked you know this guy kicked my ass. Like he was the, by far the better fighter tonight. It, for watching a fighter that for the vast majority of his career has been a durable guy at two weight classes, that was first degree murder. That was he as really brutal was. as a high, as brutal as I've seen a pretty clear number two, you know, contender get slaughtered. Yeah, like it was just bad. Yeah, it's about as as much of a shellacking as you get in a title fight, especially where neither guy is champion. And here's the thing, Joe, you know, he's used to be more dangerous than he is now. He used to be more durable than he is now, and with age, those things often tend to go. And at this point especially again with the style. I spoke about this before their first fight. His style just running headfirst into offense. He didn't do it this time. He was much more careful this time, and I give him credit for making a change because apparently in the interviews leading up to the event, he claimed that him rushing in had nothing to do with the headbutt. But it was absolutely his responsibility in the first fight. It was unfortunate to see him go down quite this, just just destroyed the way he, that he got. And then there's a picture of Megan O'Levy sitting outside the octagon, kind of consoling him as he's sitting on that stool post-knockout. Uh, or I should say post-submission in this case. But really, really good performance by Figueredo. And look, I don't see a whole lot of fighters beating this man in the near future at 125. He's a giant for the weight class. I know that he lost a couple of years ago, but I would put serious money on him over the one man that beat him, Jusia Formiga, any day now. I don't know about you. Oh, I wouldn't. I, I don't know that I would pick a lot of welterweights against him right now. No joke. Man's a man's a monster. Do you want to see him fight Triple C? I would love to see him fight Triple C. I would kill for it. I don't think Triple C is ever making 125 again. What do you think ha- what do you think happens? I think Triple C probably beats him cuz Triple C is not going to die at the first three or four clean shots that land on him and it's going to be hard to land on him to begin with triple c is going to apply more and more pressure as the fight goes on he's got the wrestling pedigree which is what bothered davidson figueredo in his one loss and honestly a couple of his wins you know were very very close because he'd given up several takedowns i know he's much better at that now but 
Triple C, I expect to do really well against Figueredo still. He's still, in my opinion, the greatest combat sports athlete in the history, Nick, of MMA, which, if you think about it, is not unlike me when it comes to MMA picking. Uh, you can go on to your next point now. Very well. Uh, Jack Hermanson, Kelvin Gastelum. Again, Ugh. another fight that you and I disagreed on, Nick. In fact, these top three fights of this fight card, you and I disagreed on. And naturally, I was right about all three. Jack Hermanson, I picked him with confidence. I said this is a betting opportunity. And he did his thing, man. Just smoked Kelvin Gastelum. I talked about how dangerous he is on the ground where he can get top position and finish with ground and pound. Or he can submit you. And man, he submitted him off his back into that heel hook. I think a lot of folks are talking about how that quick heel hook was actually pretty easy to escape from. But if you look at the replay, Jack Hermanson had Kelvin Gastelum's other leg trapped, which would not allow Kelvin to roll out of that submission. So really, really impressive stuff by Jack Hermanson, who continues his role in the 80, 185 division. I will say Kelvin Gastelum, I made this point last week. The man, his last something like eight or nine wins are over retired or retiring fighters, whether it be Jacare Souza, Michael Bisping, Vitor Belfort, Tim Kennedy, Johnny Hendricks, Nate Marquardt, Jake Ellenberger. Um, all of these guys should be retired if they're not. Most of them are retired. And is he capable of beating a top flight fighter that is in his prime? I'm not so sure. I see no reason to think so. It might, it might be back to welterweight for him. If he can make that weight, I wonder if he He's, can. Well, he, look, he looked. Right. I mean, he looked like he was in really good shape. I agree. And yeah, he got caught, but like that that reversal of the takedown into what looked like a serious WWE power slam was pretty awesome. I agree. It's just it's not something that's going to do real damage. Well, it could, but he reversed position, and um, when he stood up, he went. He did the same thing that uh, a little bit similar to uh, what Hannah Cyphers did is. You know, he had control. He stood up and he wasn't quite sh- and he was indecisive. I believe there was a little indecision there. Should I be in? Should I be out? Instead of just getting the fuck away. I wonder if he did, if he had separated and just gotten the hell away as soon as he got the takedown to bring the fight back to where he had a distinct advantage. Because I still think he's got terrific hands. Um, but, you know, error of judgment, maybe maybe it wasn't avoidable. I don't know. But it certainly uh, was over quick. I think there's something to the fact that Kelvin Gashlam really only throws one strike that anyone needs to worry about. He doesn't really go for takedowns very much. He doesn't really go for ground and pound, doesn't go for submissions, doesn't really throw very many kicks. It's literally just his left straight punch that you have to worry about with Kelvin. And uh, to be honest with you, I'm surprised that the division hasn't figured this out earlier. Is he a top flight fighter? I don't really think so anymore. He's a he's a fast, smaller wrestler, boxer who has nothing but a left hand, if we're going to be honest about it. And I think Jack Hermanson, even if Kelvin was smarter in his game plan, I think Jack Hermanson would have won that fight, whether it's by decision or a finish in other ways. My buddy Sam made the similar point that you did, that Kelvin Gastelum should not have messed with Jack Hermanson on the ground. Um, I think that at this point, people are starting to realize that Jack Hermanson is elite on the ground. He almost had Jacare submitted. He has a couple of other black belt submission wins uh, on his UFC record. So he's tough flight when it comes to the ground game. I'm going to put my two palms in your chest and push back. The way that you just uh, assessed Gasolum in light of not that long ago, him nearly, nearly dethroning Israel Adesanya, who's an elite, elite fighter. He gave him everything he could. He gave the champ everything he could handle. Yes, he did. But having a competitive fight with the guy that ended up being world champion, it's good. But again, what man under 33 years old, near retirement, has he beaten in the last, what, seven or eight years? But I also think you have to say that, and then you have to say, okay, but but almost Adesanya, or won two rounds against Adesanya. Like, you can't, it's not so easily easy to dismiss. 
like, I hear you, but Darren Till beat him. Jack Hermanson beat him. Chris Meidman beat him. Darren Till didn't really... Nobody won the Darren, his fight with Darren Till. That was just garbage. Darren Till came in there with a phenomenal game plan, and you know what his game plan was centered on? Stopping the left hand, and that was enough. That's all it took because that's all that Kelvin Gastelum really has, and that's all that worked against Israel Adesanya was that left hand. Israel would be smarter in a rematch, and I think he would dominate, especially with Kelvin at this point, unfortunately, being in kind of a weird mental state on a three-fight losing streak going from near the top of the world to this now. It's got to be tough. But again, Kelvin has not beaten a youngish fighter in forever. I want to point out that on March 15th, 2014 at UFC 171, he won a split decision against a peak Rick Story. <laughs> Can't argue with that, Nick. Six years and running. <laughs> so, yeah, uh, another <laughs> another great fight between Rafael Faziev and Mark Diacase. I think a lot of pros, a lot of experts picked Diacase in this one because he'd been looking really good in his last couple of bouts. I picked Faziev with confidence because the guy, like, he pressures so well. His wrestling was rumored to be phenomenal, and he showed it in this fight. Diacase, who's got overall decent takedown defense, gave up a few takedowns up until that third round where Faziev, who expended so much effort, energy uh, by that point and then Mark Dacasi was able to win that third round but man Faziev is someone to really worry about in this division his one loss is in his UFC debut with a spinning heel kick that would have knocked out freaking Mark Hunt so not a whole lot to be ashamed of there what do you think buddy I think people were overly friendly. I didn't pick Dacasi because I didn't do enough homework that's a common problem with you Nick yeah I got a lot <laughs> you know um Really tied my shoelaces together. <laughs> oh, that was lovely, Nick. Fucking, yeah, but what a, what a what a what a jerk. All right, so uh, what I was, man. What I was going to say was they made the people made the fight sound much closer than it was. I thought it was pretty much a blowout. Like I didn't think it was that good. I didn't think it was that. Comp- I didn't think it was really competitive at all. It it was not supposed to be a showcase fight, and it played like a showcase fight. Man, it really did. You're not kidding. In fact, if anything, it could have been argued to be a showcase fight for the other guy, for Diacase. So, yeah, I agree with you there fully. And, yeah, as a matter of fact, you're right. Look, uh, one of the judges gave uh, the fight 30-27 to Vizyev, two of them 29-28. That third round, I thought that it was competitive, but the first two rounds were pretty one-sided. Um, it's just that when Vizyev gets tired, he still throws with serious power and speed, but he does slow down the output. And I think that allowed Diacasia to have a bit of confidence. He took a few right hands, like he did. Uh, he, that that you know gave his that uh, you know touched his jaw and put put his head back. But they didn't, you know, he he recovered from them immediately. Scary, yeah. scary dude, scary dude, going to go far. We have to mention that he is the coach, the Muay Thai coach, I believe, at Tiger Muay Thai, which houses fighters like Peter Yan and Mofsad Evloev, who's fighting coming up this weekend. We're going to cover that in the next segment. Askar Askarov beat Alexander Pantoja. It was a competitive fight. Uh, I think that there's like a, a contingency that believes that Pantoja... Oh, I, I picked this one properly. Uh, you should listen to our last episode, Nick. You did not pick this one properly. You said that you like Askarov, but that you are picking Pantoja. Sorry, bud. You tried. I did? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I really did? I, I listened uh, back, Nick, because you boasted about knowing this would happen, and you actually didn't. Wah, 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 wah. Nick, I just made that sound effect with my own mouth like I didn't use any props. How impressive is that? Yeah, you get a lot of practice. 
<laughs> Probably. Uh, so, so yeah, j- just like a, a tough, a tough and rumble fight. Pantoja arguably landed more damage. Asker was able to get those takedowns and make Pantoja look like he was uncomfortable. And uh, you know, some folks think Pantoja deserved it. I'm, I'm comfortable with this. Uh, you know, I wasn't watching super closely, but I'm fine with it. Grant Dawson, you know, just dominated Nad Armani about how I think you and I expected just constant grappling pressure. Narmani, who's you know a prospect in his own right, is now I think two and two in the UFC, going from two and zero. Oh, it's got to be tough. For for him mentally uh joe duffy retired after getting submitted by joel alvarez that guy got old super fucking quick nick what the hell happened and then brett johns picked up an impressive win over montel jackson brett johns relentless non-stop heart he's 17 at two at this point and i'm going to stop underestimating this guy he's he's legit i mean i'm not saying it wasn't it wasn't close, but that was very impressive. And a quick mention to Armand Taryukan, who beat Davi Ramos, uh, basically dominated him by decision. Any of those you want to talk about a little bit, Nick? I uh, really just uh, based on the time of our show, I want to just jump right into um, our picks because I've got to take another shot at defeating you. Nick, the underdog is always going to try, and I, I respect that. Let's take a break, come back, and have the listeners listen to me whoop your ass once again. Back on the MMA Geek Sea Level podcast to break down the upcoming UFC fight night where Darren Till goes up against Robert Whitaker, the former champ in the middleweight division. Nikolai, I believe you had the first pick in the last event, and Abdul Razak Al Hassan did not come through for you. Just another reminder. It is my first pick. He, he, was, your, he was your first He was going to be your first pick to eat your golf. He was going to be, but he wasn't, Nick, because you took right. him first. And I appreciate that. Yeah. Now, uh, if you're willing to do that for me a couple times on this card, I would also appreciate that a great deal. My first pick, Nick, is going to be... I don't think he should be this big of a favorite. I think this is a little bit silly considering that his opponent is actually fairly talented. But I'm going to take Kamzat Chimaev to beat Reese McKee. Reese McKee is a pretty talented stand-up fighter. He's like 6'3" super fast a lot of power man he tags guys and they drop no matter what they're doing to him up until the moment he tags them but in this matchup Shimgaev just fought last wednesday one with a second round submission of uh, john phillips serious power but mainly surface level stand-up his wrestling and submissions are really solid he trains with all-star training center in sweden with alexander gustafsson and no opponent has ever made it past seven minutes with him i expect that mckee's probably going to lose this one but dude if he lands a clean fucking shot it could all be over, man. McKee's no joke either. I agree. He was going to be my first pick, obviously. But yeah, this guy, you know, everyone's so hot on him. They're calling him the middleweight, Khabib. Uh, we'll you know, we'll see. But yeah, that was going to be my first pick. But I'm going to go with uh, Nathaniel Wood, the English fighter, John Castaneda. I think Wood's a bit better everywhere. Like his last fight, yeah, he got caught with a really solid shot by John Dodson and TKO'd. I actually didn't love that that stoppage. I thought Wood was on his way up and may have recovered. Like, it wasn't the worst stoppage in the world, but I wasn't sure that Wood was completely done. And John Donson, as we all know, is an extremely heavy hitter at the weight class. Yeah. I just think Wood's better than this guy everywhere. I don't see a real path to victory unless there's been some, unless that TKO defeat caused some incredible emotional breakdown and, um, you know, collapse of composure. Yeah, or, or maybe if his chin is compromised from being TKO'd, but I doubt it because he didn't go out completely, as you alluded to. So Castaneda has actually decent wrestling chops, some snap to his strikes, 
but that likely won't be enough here. I expect Nathaniel Wood, as long as his chin isn't seriously compromised, as long as he's mentally all there, you should be able to bully him for a late stoppage or a decision in this one. I think Asanata may have taken this on shorter notice than Wood as well, so that's going to play for Wood. Next, I'm going to take Ramazan Emiev to beat Nicholas Stolz. Stolz is a German fighter. He's actually like Stolz, Stan. Jesus Christ. God damn, Nick. That was phenomenal. Stolz. Good for you, sir. He's German. That was fantastic. Do Jeez. Your, do your fucking research yeah, so, uh, or get hooked on phonics, bitch. <laughs> Nicholas is a good striker who took this fight on about two weeks' notice. I think Amiyev will grind his way to another decision in this one, buddy. Yeah, that was uh, pretty high on my list. I do want to quickly say this is probably going to be a boring fight because that is just what Emiyev brings to the table. He holds you against the fence. At a distance, he throws almost nothing, hopes for a takedown. So don't expect to be entertained in this one. Uh, my next pick, and there's two There's two I really want to make here, but I'm going to go with Tom Aspinall to defeat uh, Jake Collier. Uh, Jake Collier is fighting at heavyweight. He's fought at middleweight and light heavyweight before, so he's moving up against a legit heavyweight-sized guy with a wrestling and BJJ background who's had a boxing career. Like, Aspinall did, I believe, break his leg, uh, checking a kick perhaps in an earlier fight, if memory serves, but he's, like, the dude can punch. You're coming up one, two weight classes against heavyweight, I just have a feeling that Aspinall's hands are going to land hard on Collier. I think we're going to get a first-round knockout here. Yeah, I agree. Aspinall's 6'5", 254 pounds. The man is as legit a heavyweight as it gets. And Collier started at 185 pounds in the UFC six years ago. Hasn't fought in about two and a half years, and there's no real indication of what he's been up to lately. Nothing on social media. So I favor the active heavyweight who couldn't even dream of making 185 pounds. Um, Who's, who, has, who has amateur boxing experience. Yeah, I think only like, uh, I, I think he might have had like one pro fight recently or something. But maybe maybe a bunch of amateur fights. Here's the thing: Aspinall weighed in in his last fight seventy pounds heavier than that one hundred eighty five limit. Just think about it that way. So even if Collier is like the better fighter, because Aspinall can be taken down, he can be controlled. That's how he's lost before. Even if Collier is capable of doing it, can he do it to a man that's like just physically so much bigger and stronger than him? I'm not going to bet on it. So. Largely there with you. Um, my next pick, Nick, is probably going to be Nicholas Dalby to beat. God Jesse damn it! Brunson. That was the one. I, that, was that was exactly one, right? what I was going to say. If I didn't say this, which one? Which one did you have higher? Between these two, it was in that order: Aspinall and then Dalby. Okay, got so pretty, we're pretty linked up so far. Okay. Yeah, very much so so far. Yeah, uh, Runson. Even though he's twenty-one and ten overall, he's. Six and two in his last eight, fought at 170 and 155. This matchup is at welterweight, so there's a little bit of that aspect to it too. The fact that Nichols Dalby can't make no 155. He's a heavy-handed southpaw striker. He's got two recent losses in the PFL, but it's literally to like the PFL's best two fighters. Dalby is undefeated in his last five fights. Came back after alcoholism drove him out of the UFC in 2018. Beat Alex Oliveira. I called that one. Very proud of it. I was one of the very few people that picked him. Both are southpaws. Dalby has five weeks notice. Runson has three weeks notice. From what I understand, Runson is one and five outside of Canada. So I expect Dalby to do his thing here to outpressure and outwork the guy. But man, Runson legitimately has crazy power. My next pick is going to be uh, Tanner Bozer, who I think will beat down uh, Rafael Pessoa. Both of these guys actually had the... Uh, the honor of getting like beaten up by Cyril Gain. Um, I didn't think Bo- Bozer had a, he's coming off of a hot knockout in the last couple months. Uh, we haven't seen a whole heck of a lot that's impressive from Rafael Pazoa. I just think uh, Bozer's got some nasty kicks. I think he's going to go in there and like, you know, the guy looks like he's from an old school tough man contest. And I think that's what he's going to, you know, he's, I think he's going to win in, in the fashion of uh, the butterbeans of yore. 
<laughs> yeah, I, I hear you there. Um, I do have actually some trepidation about this pick after watching a little bit of tape on Rafael Pazau. He's actually like pretty athletic, giant, out of shape looking man. Like he throws spinning back kicks. He covers a lot of distance. He's pretty big on pressuring. So I do see some risk factor here, especially considering the lopsided odds. I think the weirdness of like, if you get a recent win during this pandemic and it's an impressive win, you're going to be a gigantic favorite no matter who you're fighting next seems to be the way that this is working. So Bozer took this actually on two weeks notice after that knockout victory, literally a month ago. He has a karate base, usually pretty risk averse, but he showed like the willingness and power to hang out in the pocket against Linz and knock them the heck out in the first. Pazell is one and one in the UFC. He's a decent striker. Uh, Bozer is the better fighter. If he's in shape, he'll win. But I wouldn't be surprised if Bazal, you know, buzzes him once or twice and just looks busier because uh, he's probably the bigger man in this matchup. My next pick is going to be, I'm going to go with Movsar Evloev to beat Mike Grunde. Uh-oh. Nick, both of these guys are prospects. It- Grunde is a serious wrestler. He's probably going to be able to take down Evloev early on, even though Evloev is known for his wrestling. I'd say his offensive wrestling is better than his defensive wrestling is. Uh, and Mike Grunde is actually accomplished in that field. Mike Grunde is in his mid-30s. Mofsad is in his mid-20s. So there's that aspect of it, too. Grunde gets exhausted in that third round. Mofsar, you know, he might slow down a little bit, but he's still going to have plenty of pep. Mofsar's got a really good jab, and Grunde goes for major shots for the most part. And, you know, Grundy's kind of developing his natural power uh, kind of punching style. Trains it actually with Darren Till at Coban Gym. I'm going to favor Evloev here. I think as long as he gets to the first round, he's going to be able to stick that jab, maybe even get like late takedowns as the fight progresses, maybe, you know, start to land serious strikes in that third round. But I expect him to win at the very least the second half of this bout. Yeah, my my pick. I think this is going to be a close fight. If they're, if they're both healthy, I still think it's close. And Grundy's a tremendous athlete. Yeah. I was going to pick uh, Evloev, but I don't know if you know. I mean, he, you know, trains at ATT Tiger Muay Thai. He had he had to cancel one possible. I think just one fight. He had a motorcycle crash in February. Got really bad road rash. His limbs were jacked up. There were some pictures on social media. Apparently, you didn't do your fucking homework. Um, so I'm a little. I would I would pick him with this fair degree of confidence. Had he not had that motorcycle accident, you just don't know. Yeah, I'm actually looking at pictures of his injuries. It looks like a bunch of blacks and blues. I don't know if this was taken a while after the motorcycle accident, but I saw that I saw from the hospital where it looked like his skin had been dragged across gravel. Yeah, it, it's hard to tell. It doesn't look like there's insane skin damage, but it does look like it was you know it, it wasn't a pleasant experience. Next, uh, you know we're gonna get into the interesting fights now. I'm going to go with, um, I just don't think Fabrizio Verdum has enough in the tank to take out Alexander Gustafsson unless Gus is completely broken down. He does not have the size or, I mean, he's got size, but he doesn't have, he's not going to use his size and strength the way that like Anthony Smith was able to, like, he's not going to, I just don't see him overwhelming Gustafsson. Gus's hands are still really fast. I think if Verdum wants to get in close, he's going to eat a lot of big shots and he doesn't take them that well anymore. We'll see Gus at heavyweight. I just think. He should be able to keep Verdum off of him, and then he's got faster, cleaner, better boxing. Yeah, so Verdum was on a six-fight winning streak, including a win over Cain Velasquez, and then three and four since then. He's got literally the greatest resume in heavyweight history. Finish wins over Alistair Overeem, Fedor Emelianenko, Noguera, Mark Hunt, Cain Velasquez. That's incredibly impressive. I think he submitted everyone. Well, maybe Mark Hunt, he actually knocked out. He submitted all the rest of these guys. It's freaking unbelievable. Gustafsson started his UFC career 7-1, 3-5 since, including losses to Cormier and John Jones. 
Following his loss to Anthony Smith, he retired, coming back now. He's got active footwork, good hands, good takedowns. He's going to be the faster man here. Look, Gustafsson's not a monster hitter, so he probably won't smoke Fabricio. And Fabricio can get takedowns eventually, as did Anthony Smith. Like, if you think about it, his last two losses for Gustafsson were in the same position. His opponent took his back, and it was a done deal. John Jones took his back and smashed him. And then Anthony Smith took his back and was able to submit him, which is like, that shouldn't happen. And he's facing literally the greatest heavyweight submission fighter in the history of the sport. So I think the odds are way too far apart. They should be basically even. But I do ever so slightly favor Gustafson because as long as he can avoid takedowns, he'll be fine. But if he gets his back taken, this fight might very well be over. So super risky. And that's why I kind of uh, kept away from the minus 340 favorite for as long as I have. My next pick, Nikolai, is going to be, I guess I'll take Mauricio Shogun Hua to beat Antonio Rogero. I should have taken that. Yeah, it's, it's, look, uh, here's the thing. I have trepidations about this one as well. Little Nog is two and four in his last six. Recent stoppage losses to Ryan Bader and Ryan Span, the Ryans. Wins over Sam Alvey and Patrick Cummins. Shogun. Now, just FYI, never, never do that joke again. Okay, The Ryans. I just did it once Oof. again. And you know what, Oof. Nick? It felt even funnier to me on that second try. Yeah. Shogun still has power in his hands. He's got a decent chin unless his opponent has real power. Four, one, and one in his last six. Two of those wins by stoppages, so that's pretty impressive for a really old guy fighting prospects. He beat young guns like Tyson Pager and Corey Anderson recently. I mean, like, that's unbelievable, honestly. You couldn't imagine his opponent, Little Knock, doing that. But he did lose to Anthony Smith, and most think he deserved the Paul Craig fight, which went to a draw. Their first fight in Pride, Nick, was my favorite MMA fight, maybe of all time. Certainly of my first several years of being an MMA fan. In the second fight, Shogun was leading with kicks in the first round until Nogueira tagged them with a right-hand counter, kind of landed oddly to the back of Shogun's head because he was dipping it. And Shogun was on up wobbly legs. He survived the round and then was able to get takedowns in the second and third rounds to clinch a decision. Look, Nogueira could finish him here. Nogueira still got plenty of power. His jab cross is still really fast, really powerful. So there's a fair chance that Shogun gets clocked here and it's over, but I guess I'll rely on Shogun's kicks and takedowns and, and hope that he can keep it together for 15 minutes. Cool. Uh, now we really get into Pick'em territory. Uh, I'm going to go with Francesco Trinaldo um, against uh, to defeat Jay Herbert. You know, I watched some tape on Herbert. I, just, I think that Trinaldo's just a big just a bigger thicker more physical fighter like uh herbert looks does not just doesn't look very like durable uh to me in comparison to some of the guys that Trinidad has fought or the man himself and he doesn't seem to be you know aging overnight so for it's a t- i think he's a real tough draw in your first ufc fight i believe this is Her- this is herbert's first go um so i'm gonna go i'm gonna go with the elder statesman yeah i'm there with you Trinaldo's fifth and six uh, in the UFC, three and one in his last four, but should be four and zero. Oh. He got screwed on a decision against Hernandez. He's a southpaw, forty-one years old, good jiu-jitsu, and whether he blocks or gets hit, he has just this tendency to counter, which is great. He has natural power, slows down later in a fight, but continues to pressure. Herbert is with Team Renegade with guys like Tom Breeze and Leon Edwards, fast punches. His power comes from the snap and the speed more than just from heavy hands. 10 of 11 wins are by finish, so really impressive there. His only losses to Reese McKee, who's also on this card. Trinaldo should pressure with heavy strikes into the clinch, then likely a takedown to score points. He's 10 years older and could catch a KO loss because Herbert hits really hard. And 
The thing about Trinaldo is one day he's suddenly going to be old and we're barely going to notice like the transition. This could be it, especially against the young gun. I just don't like this kind of UFC welcome, like you said, for uh, for the young guy, for Herbert. My next pick, Nikolai, is going to be, I'm going to take Alex Oliveira to beat Peter Sabata. I know Oliveira is yep. not a reliable fighter. I know that. Nope. I know that like betting on this him is, is a tough, complete crap tough shoot. pick. Yeah. Tough pick because cow, cow, Cowboys all over the place and Sabota fights every two years. So it's right, like, right, and, and Sabota's actually made some serious improvements in his second UFC stint. He's been looking much, much better than he once did. But yeah, I, I, I'm going to favor Oliveira here, who should be the athlete, more athletic. He should be the bigger fighter. Um, he's an exciting journeyman. Let's face it; he started his UFC career at seven and two, which is great, and then he's one and three in his last four. He's got close decision losses, to be fair, to Nicholas Delby and Mike Perry in those in those three losses. Well-rounded fighter, hard hitter, but weak off his back. Uh, usually tires late. Sabata's 92 in his last 11, also a journeyman, good ground game, but much improved stand-up. Uh, I just feel like Oliveira has both beaten and lost a higher level of competition than Sabata, so I'm going to side with him here. Um, yeah, I was doing the uh, same same pick, although I, if I were to pick one where you're going to eat shit, I would think like, I think there's a pretty high chance of you eating shit on this pick. Yeah, but you made the same pick, um, so you can't really give me shit about it. Yeah, you? but I let it go, so I didn't. I didn't make the pick. That's what I, that's what I'm prophesizing to win, but I didn't make a pick. Fair um, enough. <laughs> so I'm going to go with one you're probably going to disagree with because this is one of the the only underdogs I'm picking on the card. Uh, I think Carla Esparza is going to beat Marina Rodriguez. Um, I think that I just Esparza does one thing, and she's getting better at doing the other things well enough. But I think. I think she's going to be able to smother her for two rounds. I don't think that Rodriguez is going to be able to stop her her, <clears throat> her takedowns. I think that uh, Esparza's gotten more tenacious, gotten better. Um, and the last her last couple fights, I think she's, you know, I, I feel like put breathe new life into her career. Like we know we know what she's going to do. Um, and I think I see her winning those first two rounds uh, with her wrestling. And I don't think she's going to get finished in the third. I do disagree with the pick. Um, I think there's a difference between the people that have given Marina trouble thus far and Carlos Esparza, even though on surface it might look like they're the same kind of opponents, right? Rodriguez is undefeated. Two wins in her four UFC fights, and that's because she went to a draw with Cynthia Calvillo and Randa Marcos. She did beat Tisha Torres. She's a great Muay Thai pressure fighter, tall and relentless, trains a Tiger Muay Thai with guys like Faziev and Peter Yan. So super, super high-level training as far as we can tell, right? Carlos Barza, perennial top 15 fighter forever now. Three-fight winning streak now with two super close wins over Alexa Grosso and Michelle Waterson. She's got solid wrestling with improved hands and trains under Colin Oyama. So Carla has the strength that could spell trouble for Rodriguez, but unlike Marcos and Cavillo, Carla's jiu-jitsu isn't great once the fight hits the floor. Her wrestling is great to bring it to the floor. Her control isn't like high level, right? People usually get up from under Carlos Barza. Carla might win the first round with takedowns, but then she gets tired progressively more and more so as the fight continues. And by that third round, I expect Marina will be smashing her, just throwing hundreds of strikes at her. Uh, maybe not hundreds, but up to 100 strikes in that third round, just putting everything on Carla, who will barely be surviving. Um, I like Marina Rodriguez to win the second half of the fight and for that to be enough for a decision because... I mean, that sounds like the, that sounds like the Grasso fight, exactly, what you just described, except Carla got the decision. Uh, it's different from Grasso in that Grasso is not just as dangerous. Like when Marina Rodriguez is swinging at you, 
Like, even if she was swinging at me and I'm like a big guy, like I would be scared for my life. She's just ferocious, man. The way that Grasso throws, just like very technical boxing, it's not, it's not quite the same. And I would, I would argue okay. that Marina Rodriguez is a much higher level prospect than is Grasso, yeah. So I'm glad you made that pick because that could have been my last pick and I would have picked Marina Rodriguez, but you, uh, you made that not necessary. My next pick, Nick, and I'm actually pretty confident in this one considering it's one of our last three picks here. I'm going to take Robert Whitaker to beat Darren Till. Till has a solid left hand and left kick. He has low output, only really lands when moving forward, never on the counter. Till likes fights that are slow, that are plodding. He doesn't like high-pressure situations. He loses every time that happens, right? Whereas Whitaker, longtime middleweight champ, he's a pressure fighter, high output, literally the opposite of Till in that way. He used to actually have a really heavy right hook, but he hasn't knocked an opponent down in a few years with it. Whitaker landed more strikes, Nick, in his last four fights than Darren Till did in his entire UFC career of 10 fights. Whitaker is aggressive and he pushes forward. Till has low output and doesn't counter at all. So the opportunity that you would take to hurt Whitaker is when he's throwing at you. Till doesn't really do that. Whitaker was TKO'd in October of last year, but Till was knocked out cold in March of last year. So as much as Whitaker's loss is more recent, Till was fucking unconscious laying on his back uh, when he lost to Jorge Masvidal. Whitaker lands twice as many strikes per minute, but absorbs about the same number of strikes as Till does. And Whitaker is 3-0 against southpaws. Till is a southpaw. Till has taken less damage overall in his UFC career, but... I think he's still got the durability to survive a guy who doesn't really throw that much. Now, Till's left hand is a concern. If he lands it clean, it could bother Whitaker. Could even finish the fight. It's possible. But for Till to win, it needs to be a low, relaxed-paced fight where he can reset from a distance and then explode every once in a while. And I don't think Whitaker is going to give him the opportunity to do that. 22 of 25 media members gave the decision to Thompson over Till, even though Till ended up walking away with that win. Yeah, that was crazy. I know. Many of them 49-46. So the one five-rounder that Till has had, he arguably lost, and he has way less experience in that way as well. I think the odds allow this to be a great betting opportunity. I would invest fairly heavily in Robert Whitaker, honestly. Yeah, I mean, people talk about, you know, Till Till was in Brazil and trained jiu-jitsu. He, do, he still just occurs as a, as, a, as a powerful kickboxer to me, and he has that same problem that a lot of high-level kickboxers do when they come into the UFC, which is that when the game changes, when the fight transitions, they're you know they lose they lose a step, um, or they're not they're not able to adapt. If you're doing what kind of what Donald Cerrone did, if you if you decide that what you want to do with Darren Till is stand three feet, you know three or four feet uh, from him, maybe a little bit closer than I'm thinking about kicking range, and have and have like a high noon Wild West duel. Like you're taking your chances because he's got because he's got pop, but if you do a real like Robert Whitaker is a is a dirty boxer, mix it up, um, kind of all you know all over the place like scrambler and and brawler and can uh, make you make you really uncomfortable. And watching Darren Till so far, it's not that hard to make him uncomfortable. So. Um, so yeah, I was picking Whitaker. Also, I mean, the question is, where's where's Whitaker? Where's his physicality? Like, what like what what does he have left after two fights? Um, <clears throat> after the two fights with Yoel Romero, um, which take years off of the life of a man, and uh, and the one fight without Asanya, which was devastating, but not near probably not nearly as brutal as um, fifty minutes in a cage with Yoel Romero. So. Uh, yeah, I'm picking I'm picking Whitaker also. Would have been my next pick. 
Yep. So there's only two. There's two. There's two left, and they're neither of them are really very attractive fights. No. Um, I'll do what it always gets me in trouble. I'll probably lose because I'll pick with my heart because I can't stand Beth Cahaya. Uh, <laughs> and I'm gonna pick uh, Penny. Uh, uh, Kianz- how do you tell you say her last name? Penny Kianzad. Yep. Kianzad. Uh, I think that. I mean, she's a you would agree with me, right? She's a better. I mean, she's a better athlete, and Beth Cahaya's striking always looks pretty terrible. She still seems to win sometimes, um, but. I hope that uh, I hope that Penny is a- is active enough and puts Kohea down a couple rounds early, so we don't get any bullshit decision. Yeah, I mean, Kanzad has the technique advantage, but Betch has the experience in the UFC. She's got a certain level of craft that allows her to beat opponents that are actually more skilled than her, or look really, really competitive against opponents that are a couple of leagues above her. Um, look, this this is probably going to be a super close decision. I'm sure the argument will be made either way, but I'm giving the slightest of edges to Kianzad, but I'm really glad you chose this one as opposed to the other option just because I, I'm the most unsure about this Kianzad Kohea uh, I mean, I'm, I'm equally... I'm pretty unsure about the next fight too, but we could talk... I mean, listen, one dude's either going to have top control uh, the entire... He's going to have top control the entire time we win or the guy he has top control on is going to submit him from the bottom. I don't know which one of those things is going to happen. Yeah, so... Watch, I'm, probably, I'm probably wrong and it's going to be a kickboxing fight. Uh, yeah, that, that would be something else. Look... Paul Craig is not really seen as a prospect, but he has several surprising performances no. in the UFC. Yes. He beat Magomed Ankalaev, still the only man to do that. He beat Kennedy Enzichuku, who I think he's the only one that beat him as well. And honestly, he was roughing up Shogun in the first round of their fight last year before yeah, Shogun over, came back. He overperforms. Yeah, he, he really does. Like way above his league, I would say. He's got a good double leg, good submissions, and improving striking. Whereas Antigulov is basically a berserker of a grappler. He goes 100% for about four minutes hoping to submit you. And if he doesn't finish you, he's probably in trouble. I expect Craig to survive that early blitz because his submission defense should be good enough for that. And then he should be able to take over. He's got pretty good double. He can get those takedowns. He should have the striking advantage. If Antigulov is willing to go low paced, he can probably win this fight. But I don't trust him to do that based on his UFC performances so far. Plus, I think he's coming off of a long layoff. So I like Craig in this one. I think this is going to end up being our tiebreaker, Nick, since this is the 15th fight. So should be interesting how this works out, buddy. Yeah, I mean, we're most we're almost in agreement on just about everything. Yes, sir. I think the only one we disagreed on was the Rodriguez-Esparza uh, fight, which, to be honest, probably means that we're going to end up only getting like a quarter of these right. Good job. Looking forward to boasting about this win, as I usually do, Nick. Uh, we're going to take a break. Nick is actually uh, done for this episode. I'm going to come back and give you guys the MMA Geeks betting guide. My sponsor says that I'm not allowed to talk about gambling for another two weeks on the podcast. Nick, can I get a piece of the sponsorship? God damn it. No, not that kind of sponsor, you moron. <laughs> oh, <laughs> understood, Nick. I should not Jesus bring up betting to Christ. you at all. I'm going to send you all of my jokes ahead of time next time to make sure that you get them. Oh, I see what you did there. The problem is that that one went over my head, too. <laughs> Stan needs the Cliff Notes Jiraev. I'll talk to you later. Later, bud. Welcome back to the MMA Geeks betting guide. Now, before I get into that, I'd want to ask you guys to check out my 10-minute full card breakdowns on YouTube. It's on the MMA Geeks C-Level podcast channel. I would very much appreciate your support if you could subscribe and give me some feedback. That would be absolutely lovely. Now, let's get into the betting for this card. My first bet is a straight bet on Robert Whitaker at minus 120 
$60 to $150. I think he should be a solid favor going into this one unless Darren Till just shocks the world and Whitaker's chin is just ruined from that last fight against Adesanya. I expect that Whitaker will do very well here. I think stylistically this one benefits him a great deal. Fabricio Verdum. I think it's a pick'em fight against Gustafsson at plus 290. I recommend $17 to win 51. Worst case, you lost 17 bucks, and if he does win, then you've got a nice payday on that one. And then I've got a couple bets on the Esparza versus Rodriguez matchup. I do think it's going to a decision, and I'd like to kind of cover myself in all situations. Now, Rodriguez has gone to a draw twice out of four times in her UFC career by kind of losing one of the three rounds dominantly and then winning the other two rounds. So just on the off chance that this happens here, I'm going to go ahead and place $3 on the Esparza Rodriguez bout to go to a draw. That's $3 to win 125 bucks. I figure it's certainly worth throwing away that 3 bucks. Worst case scenario, the odds there are plus 4500 And then Esparza by decision, plus 200 $50 to win 100 And then Rodriguez by decision at plus 100 $50 to win 50 So the idea here is that as long as this fight does not get finished before the final bell, I'm either going to break out even or make a profit. And if it does go to finish, then I've lost about $103 on this fight anyway. Evloev, by decision, at plus 110. I like his odds. I like his jab. I like the fact that he is probably going to have more gas left in the tank late in the fight. So I recommend $45 to win 50 on Mossad Evloev, by decision. And finally, Francisco Trinaldo and Nathaniel Wood as a parlay together. Both of these guys are decent-sized favorites, especially Wood. But you can get plus money if you put them together. $42 to make 50 and that will do it for the MMA Geeks betting guide. And as has become our custom here, I'm quickly going to go over some of the upcoming bouts. Uh, UFC Fight Night Brunson versus Shabazian. We know that Arena Aldana had to pull out against Holly Holm, so we have this new main event here, a great showcase for the winner of this bout, Shabazian versus Brunson. That's going to be an interesting middleweight matchup. And then we've got Vincente Luque versus Randy Brown, a phenomenal prospect matchup. I think this is a great crossroads for these guys to meet up at. Joanne Calderwood versus Jennifer Maya. I thought that Joanne was getting that next title shot, but it seems like they're going to have these two girls face off first. Ed Herman versus Gerald Mirchart. I guess that's kind of interesting. I'm guessing that's happening at 185, which means that Herman is coming back to the middleweight division. Kevin Holland versus Trevin Giles. Bobby Green versus Lando Venata. Yeah, there's some interesting matchups here. Frankie Sines versus Jonathan Martinez. Me as a hardcore MMA fan, I'm going to enjoy that bout as well. Ray Borg is coming back against some UFC newcomer. I don't know how he has this deal with the matchmakers where they keep throwing him all of these young prospects that haven't even competed in the UFC. And then we've got Jamal Emers, who's a serious, serious prospect going up against Timur Valiev, who's the name is very familiar. I'm sure I've seen this guy compete before. So actually a surprisingly stacked card. I'm looking forward to that one next weekend. Thank you guys for the listen and looking forward to rubbing it in Nick's face next week. Resounding, resounding victory for a second weekend.